This sermon is called The Day the Funeral Director Came to Church. It's based on Acts 5, 1 to 11. These are hard-hitting verses to preach, but also hard-hitting verses to hear. But they are verses in, the, in our copies of God's Word, so, and they come next. So we will deal with them with the Lord's help. Hypocrisy, I think you would agree with me, is a common reason why some persons don't want to come to a church. Some people write off going to any church because they feel that in in most churches there are hypocrites. Hypocrisy means wearing a mask. It means uh, pretending to look one way that one knows one is not. Uh, It's the hypocrite who complains there's too much cursing and violence on my TV. And it's the hypocrite who condemns the church because all of its members aren't fine living Christians. But we don't tear down hospitals because not all patients recover. Hypocrisy is a deliberate deception. It's wearing a mask. It's playing the part of an actor or an actress to cause other persons who see us to think that we are a person that we know ourselves not to be. In Acts chapter 5, hypocrisy infected the baby church. And I invite you to follow with me as I read Acts 5, 1 to 11, please. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then... Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look at the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carried her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. A married couple had real estate, of all things, reveal their hypocrisy. The husband's name was Ananias, which interestingly means God is gracious. And the wife's name was Sapphira, which equally interestingly means beautiful. And God is gracious, of course, but God is also holy. And God can make a person beautiful, but a person can make themselves in their own heart ugly with sin. As I study scripture, I have noticed that there's a bit of a pattern 
of intense judgment of sin when it comes at the beginning of a new period in salvation history. Let me give you some examples. Just after the tabernacle was built, God killed Nadab and Abihu for trying to present false fire to the Lord. We read about that in Leviticus 10. Another example. God killed Achan as the Israelites were first entering the promised land because he took some of the spoils from the battle previous and put them under his tent. We read about that in Joshua chapter 7. A third example. When the Ark of the Covenant was being transferred from Philistia back to Jerusalem, God killed Uzzah for touching the Ark of the Covenant. We read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Of course, all of these are Old Testament examples of severe judgment, and they are recorded for us according to the Word of God. They are recorded for us to be warnings. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 11 and 12. Now, all these things happened to them, Old Testament persons, as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So Old Testament history in places warns us that in some cases, God killed believers. But there's also New Testament mention of such a severe judgment as well. God killed some believers in Corinth when they cheapened the Lord's Supper. We'll be looking at that later in the service, the communion service in 1 Corinthians 11.30. And then there's a very heart-moving verse for me in 1 John 5, verse 16, because it mentions a sin leading to death. And when you look at the context of 1 John 5, 16, the context is that the text is talking about a believer in Christ. This sin that leads to death is an unnamed sin by 1 John 5, 16, but I believe it varies from believer to believer, and whatever that sin might be for whatever whomever a believer, it's the final straw of tolerance from God. Not to take away salvation for such a sinning saint, not to take away salvation, but rather to take away a loss of further opportunity to glorify God here on earth. The believer is taken in judgment through death into heaven. Listen to 1 John 5, 16. If anyone sees his brother, there is a Christian, sinning a sin which does not lead to death, in other words, having not having a sin that's God is going to say, I've had enough and I'm going to kill you and take you to heaven. If you see a brother sinning in that kind of way, he will ask and he will give him life. For those who commit a sin not leading to that kind of death, I interject, God having enough and killing a believer and taking him to heaven early. There is a sin, though, verse 16 of 1 John 5 continues, there is sin leading to death. And I do not say that he should pray about that. God is gracious and long-suffering, but there is biblical footing to stand on that at some point he has said, that is enough, believer. I'm going to take you home to heaven through physical death. 
And this verse goes so far to say that kind of a sin you don't you shouldn't even pray about for someone else. That's very that's very hard hitting, isn't it? Of course, sin is very serious. Always has been. Sin is very serious. All sin is very serious for at least three words reasons. It, sin caused the cross's tortures for Christ to be necessary as he bore our sins. Second, undealt with sin is serious because it is the judicial basis for unbelievers being sentenced to consciously suffer in hell forever. But there's more. All sin is also serious because the volume of sin for the unbeliever determines the degrees of punishment in hell for that unsaved person. The text on the great white throne judgment in Revelation 20 and particularly verse 12 makes that clear. And so sin is serious. Sin is serious to us as a household of faith, and sin is serious to those outside of salvation in Jesus Christ. This prompted evangelists from yesteryear, Billy Sunday, to say the following. One reason sin flourishes is that it is treated like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. And I think what we're seeing around us, hopefully not within us, are persons viewing something as serious as God calls sin as a cream puff and not a rattlesnake. So going back to Ananias and Sapphira, their unique situation, their actions, their sinful actions, were at least three things. Number one, their actions were Satan-pleasing. I see that in verse 3 of Acts 5. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the price of the land for yourself? So what they did in lying to the Holy Spirit was Satan-pleasing, because Satan is a liar. To lie is characteristic of Satan, according to John 8, 44. This is why we're told in 1 John 4, 1 through 3, to test the spirits. Because, of course, not every spirit is from God. Not every spirit is good. Some spirits are false prophets or the spirit of Antichrist. And therefore, we need to, with God's discerning help, test the spirits. Now it's popular. Have you heard it? I have. When you try to witness to someone you're not sure is saved, they say, I'm a spiritual person. I'm a spiritual person. You have to explore that with that person because I'm here to tell you that someone can think of themselves as spiritual without being Christ-centered at all. Lies, going back to the fact that Ananias and Sapphira's sin was Satan-pleasing in their lying, lies are one of Satan's favorite tools. He's got a lot of tools in his toolbox, but lies are one of the most common. It was Oliver Wendell Holmes who wrote this, sin has many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. Sin, Satan, and sin have many tools, but a lie is the handle which fits them all. And so number one, Ananias and Sapphira's actions were Satan-pleasing. That's why they were so serious. Second, their actions were rooted in pride. At the end of chapter 4, a man named Barnabas is recorded to have brought proceeds of the sale of his property, and has, he gave them to the church. And no doubt, such a large gift would have been noticed by the other members of the church, and quite 
possibly it could have won Barnabas' admiration by those in the church. Could it be, and I'm just asking the question, could it be that Ananias and his wife wanted similar recognition and respect? If that were the case, then it would have been pride would have been the reason that they lied about the real estate transaction. Now, please hear me. As I preached last Sunday, giving the 100% sale proceeds of selling your real estate was not required by God. Believers didn't have to do that then, and believers don't have to do that now. But even though it was not a requirement to sell one's property and give 100% of the sale price to the church, one brother did, Barnabas, and a brother and a sister said they did, but they didn't. Pride, if it is in fact at the root of what Ananias and Sapphira did, pride, we must admit all these centuries later, that pride is a jacket that we all can fit into, and quite easily, as a matter of fact. If lying is a one-size-fits-all handle to most sins, then pride, according to Daniel Defoe, pride is the president of hell. Pride is the president of hell. Pride made Lucifer Satan. Pride motivated Eve to eat of the forbidden fruit. Pride is the doorman which opens the door to almost every other sin, including hypocrisy. This is how it works. Once we are more concerned with our reputation than with our character, then there is no limit on what we will say or do to make ourselves look good. So far in the message, we've seen that God severely judged Ananias and Sapphira by killing them because, one, their actions were Satan-pleasing, and two, their actions were rooted in pride. The third offense to holy God was that their actions were directed against God's church. I think that there is every reason to believe that Ananias and Sapphira were true Christians. I don't believe they were phony Christians faking it. Why? Well, the fact that they were able to lie to the Holy Spirit, according to verse 3, and the fact that they tested the Holy Spirit, verse 9, indicate to me that they had the Holy Spirit actually living in them. They were legitimate Christians. They were true Christians. But as you know, God really loves his church. He looks out for his church. This is because Christ's church is made up of believers like us who have been purchased by the Savior's precious blood. The church is treasured by God because the price tag to bring it to pass was the death and bloodshedding of God's only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The price tag on the church was huge to the Godhead. And so God really loves the church. He looks out for the church. He treasures the church. And sin directed against the church is very grievous to God. Acts 20, 28 Paul, last meeting with the Ephesian church's elders on the beach, 
Therefore, take heed to yourselves, he said to the elders. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd, now watch, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. The fact that everyone who makes up the true church has been purchased by the blood of Christ makes the church especially dear to Christ, the head of it, and God the Father, and to God the Holy Spirit. And so the church is also tied to God's glory. God's glory and the church are interlinked. They relate to each other. In Ephesians 1, 7 to 14, please listen. In him, that is Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made us to, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ, watch, should be to the praise of his glory. God expects every one of us who have been bought with the blood of Christ and born again would live to the praise of God's glory. And when you lump together an assembly, a congregation, a family, a local church of believers who have been bought with the blood of Christ and have as the purpose to live to the praise of his glory, then guess what? We all, as a church, collectively live to God's glory. The church is intrinsically connected and linked up to God's glory. Goes on, verse 13. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, watch, to the praise of his glory. We are linked into God's glory as a church in the here and now as we live and serve and worship and train our children and share our faith. But one day when that Redemption is completed, and we receive all the inheritances that are ours in Jesus Christ. It will still be to the praise of God's glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever in heaven. Of course, Satan wants to destroy the church, and the easiest way to do so is to mess up the church from the inside. That may surprise you. But that is the truth. The easiest and most effective way Satan has to try to destroy a church is to mess it up with sin on the inside by the believers who make up the church. I mean, that's why Satan plants liars and proud hypocrites in some churches that they will infiltrate knowing the language of the Lord, knowing when to sit down and when to stand up, how to look like they fit in. But hearts are far from God, and they infiltrate the church, and it begins to decay from the inside out like some kind of an apple where it's rotting from the core out to the skin. 
You see, the Apostle Paul, of course, was well aware of Satan's strategy to try to destroy churches from the inside out. And so he gave the warning I began to read part of to the elders at the church at Ephesus. And I'll read you the whole warning. Listen to how clear Paul was uh, to those elders. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, from among yourselves, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So let me develop this a little further. We are told in 1 Timothy 3.15, that the church is God's custodian of the truth. So Satan attacks the truth with lies from the inside out. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, we learn that the church is God's temple. So Satan wants to move into the church and dwell there too. In 2 Timothy 2.1-4, we're told the church is God's army. And so Satan puts on an army uniform and makes traitors inside the church. In some regards, the church is safe when Satan attacks from the outside of it. I mean, we know the principle, we see it in Scripture and in church history, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So in a sense, when the church is being attacked by Satan from without, It's not nearly as big a danger as when Satan attacks the church from inside. Now, I want to take you to Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. Now, I know this is Old Testament. I know this is before the church was born. But I also know that this is timeless truth that we had to listen to. Proverbs 6, 16 and 19. These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. Ever wondered why he would say, here's a list of six, but the seventh one I also want to mention? Because when you mention the seventh one, you're saying the seventh one is the most serious one of them all. That's why they're separated. So it's very interesting. In Proverbs 6, 16 to 19, it says, These six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to run to evil. And here's the seventh one. A false witness who speaks lies. No, excuse me. Here's the seventh one. And one who sows discord among the brethren. So these verses say there are things that are seven things that are an abomination to God, and the last one is particularly abominable to him, which is 
one who sows discord among the brethren. And so as I stand before God and you this morning, preaching a difficult text to preach and a difficult text to hear preached, I want to say something that is easy, easy to admit. It's easy for us to condemn Ananias and Sapphira for their dishonesty and their hypocrisy. It's easy. But I need to examine my own life, and I suggest that you all need to examine your own lives to see if we would be wearing any masks or hiding any bad practices while making very nice-sounding professions of faith. So here are some questions that I'm going to ask myself, and I think there's some questions that you ought to ask yourselves, okay? So that we not become an Ananias or a Sapphira. First question, do I really mean everything I publicly pray? Number two, do I sing Christian song lyrics which really aren't my thinking or my living? Number three, does my Christian talk line up with my Christian walk? Number four, am I different among believers than I am when I am all alone? Am I different when I'm among brothers and sisters in Christ than I am when I'm by myself? If God, st- five, if God still killed religious deceivers, would I have reason to fear being struck down? Six, do I judge my own sin and turn from it? When the Holy Spirit convicts me of sin, do I respond to him, agree with him, deal with it, turn from it, confess it, be forgiven and turn from it? Or is there something far inferior that we do instead? Number seven and last, does 1 John 5.16 immediately demand my repentance? That's a good question to ask oneself. In Hebrews 10, 30-31, we read, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. That jumps out of the page at me. The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. His people. You know, had Ananias and Sapphira judged their own sin, God would not have had to judge them by striking them dead. In the passage we're going to look at when we come to the Lord's Supper, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 31, for if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. Here's something else that I find interesting. It is interesting to me that Sapphira was totally unaware of her husband being struck dead. But really, this is characteristic case of Satan keeping those that he is using in the dark. In contrast, God guides those of us who are his so that we know what he's doing in the light. John 15, 15, no longer, Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father, I have made known to you. 
Sapphira was in the dark because she was a servant of Satan. We can live in the light because we're, because we're servants of Christ. Now, when you boil it all down, I don't want us to miss something. When you boil it all down, Ananias and Sapphira's sin of lying, their lying did not rob God of money. It robbed God of his glory. You know, money is obsolete in heaven, but God's glory is the ambiance of heaven. They didn't rob God of money. They robbed God of glory. And Ananias and Sapphira lied to get human praise, it would seem, where in contrast, Barnabas gave with truth and God got the praise. One of the purposes in judging Ananias and Sapphira in such a severe way was so that God would see that his non-lying and non-hypocritical believers would properly and reverentially fear him. And it worked. Verse 11, so fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. So what God did with Ananias and Sapphira for the reasons God had for doing it, it was preventative medicine for the rest of the church of the first century, and it still is preventative medicine for the church of Jesus Christ in the 21st century. And as you well know, the doorkeeper at the gateway of the whole book of Proverbs tells us this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You want to know God? Fear him. You want to be better acquainted with who God is and what God does? Then reverentially respect him. And I close with another heavy-duty pair of verses. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29, addressing believers. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably, watch, with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We don't hear many sermons on that, but it's true. And so, a difficult text. A hard-hitting text, a needful text, a gracious text to warn us where we might need warning, a life-transformative text, not just in our public lives transformed, but our inner and secret lives transformed text. He loves us so much, he warns us. Let's pray. Lord, we do consider ourselves to be warned And it's time we would confess to judge our own sins as the Spirit of God brings them to our awareness. May we not just be good at judging the sins of other brothers or sisters, but may we be authentic, real, humble, holy in judging our own sins as the Spirit of God points them out to us. Lord, it's easy for any of us, all of us, to fall into episodes of hypocrisy, wearing a mask, playing a role, forgive us when we have done that and help us to be authentic. What you see is what you get, Christians. 
Lord, lying to the Holy Spirit, as we've seen in this passage, is very serious. There's something called the sin leading to death that it isn't named in the Scriptures a particular sin, but it's known only to you. Help us not to be involved in that kind of a sin when you say, enough, I'm taking you to heaven. Give us a reverential fear of you, Lord. I thank you that when we study chapters 4 and 5 of Acts, we see that the baby church moved from great power and great grace in 433 to great fear in 511. Lord, may this church, your church, Calvary Bible Church, also move from great power and great grace to great fear or reverential respect for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen.